So um, I think we can all agree, I think we can all agree, Christmas is just one of those holidays that requires a lot of preparation. You know, there's, there's just so much to do. Um, there's, there's shopping for gifts, there's putting up the decorations, Christmas cookies, Christmas cards, Christmas dinners, Christmas trees. There's just a lot to prepare for, and hopefully for most of you, uh, most of that is behind you rather than in front of you, um, but uh, you know, there's truly a lot of things to do to prepare. Um, and we want, it to, we want our Christmas celebrations to go really well. But sometimes, despite our best efforts to plan and arrange things the way we would like, things can go wrong. You know, you're, you're out, and you've got your uh, Christmas lights um, finally up, and then they start to fall down off of the hooks that you've uh, hung them on. Sometimes you've got those lights up, and you want to go to flip the switch, and they do not turn on. Uh, sometimes you fix that, and then uh, half of them turn on. And... You know, there's just there's really a lot of things you can, that can go wrong. You can buy the wrong gift. You can put too much baking soda in the recipe. I, I, I think that's one that has happened a lot at my house. Um, uh, not, not, not Katie. I'm talking about my, my family. Um, ooh. <laughs> um, um, uh, so so you, can, you can send your Christmas card to the post office without stamps. Have you ever done that one before? Yes, I've done that one before. Um, sometimes the Christmas tree falls over. This is my favorite one. I, I just think there's something just really funny about a Christmas tree all decked out and laying on its side. Isn't that just, just a hilarious thing? You know, and I've, I've realized um, over the course of past Christmases that uh, this is actually one of those universal Christmas experiences, having the Christmas tree fall over. And I'd actually want to try something here. I, I want to see if, if there is someone here who already... Already this year, your Christmas tree has fallen over. Is there anyone who would admit this year your, your Christmas tree has fallen over? Anyone? No, no, nobody. Nobody. You guys are pretty good. How about anyone who has had the, Christ, the Christmas tree fall over before in their life? All right. Look. Look at all those people. We're in good company. Um, well, um, I... <laughs> Our Christmas tree didn't fall over this year, but we've learned a lot of uh, lessons from uh, past Christmases, past mistakes. And, you know, we have three little boys, and so Katie made the very smart decision this year um, to buy a bunch of these um, plastic ornaments, plastic uh, bulb ornaments. They're red, and, and really they're, they look very nice. They, they look like um, the real glass ones, um, but they're plastic, and uh, we decided this year we're not going to put any glass or breakable ornaments on the tree. It's all going to be stuff that can, that can fall down. And so, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's been a really smart move in hindsight because Reuben, who is um, a little bit over a year old, um, has, um, has been picking the ornaments off the tree. And you can actually see how high he can reach because all around the tree there is uh, no ornaments at the bottom. The whole, the, the whole bottom of the tree has no ornaments because he, uh, he's been picking them off. Well, well the evening uh, that we were decorating um, our tree, it was going very well. You know, no, very, very little crying, um, very, li- <laughs> very, very little fighting. This was, this was a good evening. Um, and I think we'd only broken one of the plastic ornaments so far. So um, we were going to, we were, we were decorating the tree, and, and of course we wanted to put the, the tree topper on last. And uh, we had chosen this heart-shaped bulb. 
it uh, had a red ribbon that went through a little you know, hole in the top of it, and it was tied together to make a, a loop. And it was the one glass ornament that we were going to put on the tree. And, uh, and we had said, you know, this will be okay, you know. Um, we're going to put it at the top of the tree. The kids can't reach it. Um, just one glass ornament. It'll be okay. Um, so uh, Katie gives it to me, and, um, and I'm holding it, and Abram wants to put it up on the tree. And he's like, oh, can I put it up on the tree, Daddy? And I, I'm like, no, no, no. Daddy's going to put this one up. And, uh, and so I'm holding the, 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 the ornament, and um, they're putting the last few. We've got like five ornaments left. And they're putting it on the tree, and I'm holding the glass arm, got my finger through the loop, and I may have been playing with it a little bit, um, but, but, but I'm, I'm holding it there, and suddenly I feel a lightness in my hand. The, the knot in the loop becomes undone, and the heart smashes to the floor into a million pieces, and, and our Christmas decorating party is over. No, I did not just drop it. The loop came undone. <laughs> the loop came undone. So we quarantine the living room, and I proceed to spend the next hour picking up, uh, trying to get every little piece of glass off that floor. The one, only one breakable ornament, and I am the one who breaks it. And by the way, Katie says that I did not adequately uh, describe how beautiful this ornament was. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a really beautiful ornament. So Christmas doesn't always go as we planned. Trees falling over, broken glass ornaments, these are small things. Um, but sometimes there can be real disappointments at Christmas. You know, oddly enough, layoffs, for some reason, you know, it feels like they often happen um, right before the holidays, leading up to the holidays. Maybe you're used to a large gathering of relatives, and for some reason, um, this year, your, your Christmas gathering is going to be a lot smaller. It's this time of year that uh, we think about those loved ones who have passed away recently. And, uh, and we also think about those loved ones with whom we are estranged. Sometimes it feels like your family is just wrapped up in the materialism and the consumerism. You just feel like, man, the spirit of the holiday is uh, getting lost. You know, there's this new iPhone commercial. You may have seen it. Um, it's Christmas time at this one family's uh, house, and uh, they're doing all their Christmas traditions, you know, decorating the tree, you know, making cookies and all this stuff. And this one teenager is uh, on his phone the whole time, and, you know, everyone is uh, making cookies, you know, they're, 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 you know, paying attention to each other, but he's always looking at his phone, and people are getting kind of peeved about it. And then at the end of the commercial, you find out that he has made this beautiful um, he's, all, all the time he was on his phone, he was making this beautiful video for his family members, members d- documenting all the memories, you know, the greetings, the, the, all the special moments, and he shows it to his family, and everyone is just crying, and it's just this wonderful um, holiday moment, um, and they're so glad that he, he made this video. And I'll be honest, after I saw this commercial, I laughed out loud. Um, I, I just thought, you know, this is every mom's dream. But let's be honest, how often is that person who is on their phone actually doing something for someone else? How often is that the case? Rarely is that the case. Most of the time, they are making a, you know, they're playing a game. They're, they're on the internet. You know, it's a YouTube video. You know, whatever, whatever else. Rarely is that the case. You know, uh, teenagers get a bad rap for stuff like this. Uh, but let's be real here. It's not just teenagers, right? Lots of people play games on their phones. Lots of people get lost in the internet. 
We've bought these gifts, and we've made these special foods, and we've decorated uh, not so that we could have this fleeting moment of, uh, of, of excitement. No, we have done these things because we long to experience joy at Christmas. We expect that of all times, the Christmas season should be a time of joy. We plan and we hope for a time of togetherness with friends and family, where we are enjoying each other's company, a time free from division and disappointment. We know inside that the most interesting, exciting gift we could imagine cannot be a substitute for the joy that we long for. We want to have happiness that lasts. We want to experience something deeper. But sometimes Christmas isn't turning out like we had hoped. And that joy that we longed for at Christmas just isn't there the way we had hoped it would be. If you are looking for joy, I want you to know that there is a place where you can find real joy. The sort of joy that feels missing in your life. And uh, oddly enough, the place where we can find that joy is nestled right here in the account of Jesus' birth. You see, the birth of Christ was not meant to be a sentimental holiday in our minds. It was meant to be one of those acts of God that grabs our attention and says something. There's a message in the Christmas narrative. It's a message about who God is. And he reveals who he is in the birth of his son. When you know and understand who God is and who he revealed himself to be in the birth of Jesus, you will be able to find real joy. Today I'm going to highlight four ways that God reveals himself in the birth of Christ. The first thing that God reveals about himself is that he is gentle and patient with our faults. He is gentle and patient with our faults. Now, if I were to use the word Messiah here, many of you would, it would conjure up ideas of Jesus, right? Um, you, would, you would think of him, and you would think of a, a spiritual Messiah, someone who brings spiritual awareness, someone who brings uh, spiritual um, salvation, But for the Jewish people living in the first century, when Jesus was born, their expectation of Messiah was very different. You see, they were expecting a kingly Messiah, a commander Messiah, a Messiah who would be victorious in battle. You see, there were prophecies about the Messiah that foretold that the Messiah would bring on this deliverance for Israel, that that Israel's enemies would be put under their feet, that they would be um, no longer ruled by these other countries. The, the prophecy said that um, the Messiah would be a, a descendant of King David, and that when the Messiah sat on the throne, his kingship would last forever. Never again would the people of Israel be taken over by another country. And you see, by the time of Jesus, the Israelite people had been uh, ruled by other nations for hundreds and hundreds of years. They were taken over by the Assyrians, they were ruled by the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greek Empire, and now they were being ruled by the Roman Empire. And they didn't like it. They didn't like having to pay those heavy taxes and always having to see their sons go off to war for for a country they didn't even care about. They didn't like it. They longed to be able to put a Jewish king on that throne. And they longed for a king who would drive those Romans out. The prophecies said that the Messiah would deliver Israel from its enemies, and the Messiah would establish a kingdom of peace that would never end. 
And when you understand the Jewish expectations about the Messiah, I think you'll notice that some of the things in the Gospels, they read a little differently. And I think they actually make a little bit more sense. You know, there's this one point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has just multiplied um, food, and all the people are like, wow, this is really incredible, and uh, they, they, they see what he's done, and they want to make him king. And now, now you see, they, they didn't want to make him king because they thought Jesus would make a better king than the one they already had. They wanted to make him king because once the Messiah was king, he would be instituting an everlasting kingdom of peace, and Israel would no longer be subject to the Romans. They wanted that new era, and they wanted it right now. And Jesus realized this, and he says, you know, he withdraws from the crowd because he knows that his time hasn't come yet. You know that time when uh, Peter and James are uh, talking amongst each other, and they come over to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, can, can, uh, can one of us sit on your right and left hand when you enter into your kingdom? You know, we often think, oh, they're wanting to sit on his right and left hand in heaven, Right. No, that's not what they wanted. They wanted, they wanted the, uh, the, the suite, the next door suite to the king in the palace. They wanted to be his right-hand man. They wanted all the nice foods. They wanted the earthly rewards of being the right-hand man of Jesus. They weren't thinking about heaven. And, of course, Jesus says, hey, guys, 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 leadership is all about service. He kind of realigns their priorities. When Jesus began explaining to Peter that he was going to travel down to uh, Jerusalem and that he was going to be killed there, he was going to be handed over to these religious leaders and they were going to kill him, you know, uh, Peter, Peter had just identified Jesus as the Messiah. Um, and Jesus said, yeah, you're right. Um, I'm going to go down and I'm going to die. Um, and, P- and Peter pull, pulls Jesus aside and he's like, Jesus, 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 you are never going to die. This is never going to happen to you. Because, of course... If Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus must sit on the throne, and dying can have no place in that plan. That doesn't work. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, hey, Peter, you got your eyes on the things of this world. Jesus was a very different type of Messiah. Instead of being the conqueror king that the Jews expected, he describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. And when he makes his long-awaited entry into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he doesn't ride in on a horse like any normal general or commander would. Instead, he rides on a much smaller animal, a donkey. And not even a donkey, a baby donkey. Kings and conquerors and generals, they rode on these tall horses, but Jesus rides in on a baby donkey. And in doing so, he actually fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah that reads, See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, one of the memorable moments of the past year was when uh, Prince William and his wife Kate had their baby. A lot of people pay t- paid attention to this. Um, I was not one of them. Um, but there's a lot of hullabaloo about uh, this, this, this royal baby, royal baby. Newspapers were abuzz um, declaring this baby to be the world's most famous baby. And uh, millions of people watched coverage of, uh, of the anticipation of the announcement. There were gun salutes all over the world. They rang the bells at Westminster Abbey. They made coins. Um, they, they had special musical compositions to celebrate this baby. There was all sorts. There was, there was even an easel, a special easel crafted to uh, put a special plaque that had been crafted just for the baby's announcement. 
And, uh, and then when, and I, I thought this was really funny. When they put that plaque out there, did anyone notice what happened? Everyone is crowding around taking pictures of a plaque. It's not even the baby. It's just a plaque. But all these people are like focused in trying to take, you know, the perfect picture of this plaque announcing the baby's birth. Just a plaque. And the world, the world, it seemed like all the world was paying attention to this royal birth. Now contrast that to the birth of Jesus. Now, God could have made a big celebration of Jesus' birth. He could have gathered millions of people around to await his arrival. But instead of blowing his horn all over the world to announce his own arrival, he came quietly and meekly. The world hardly even knew it happened. In the time of Jesus' birth, Caesar was taxing um, everyone in the Roman Empire. And so people had to go to, um, to different towns to be taxed. And they were not happy about this. They were not happy about the travel. They were not happy about the tax. There was no grand entrance for Jesus. There were no invitations. There was no plaque. Jesus wasn't even given a decent room to stay in. And God was coming to fix our situation on earth. What sort of God do we serve that when we have messed up this world with sin and corruption, when we have ruined our own lives, when we have rejected what he's told us to do, when we're in dire straits, what sort of God do we serve that he births himself into the world as a little baby? What does that say about him? It says that he is a gentle God, that he is patient with our faults. It says that he's less interested in punishing us, and he's more interested in walking with us. It says that he wants to be with us, He doesn't want to be a detached royal king sitting up in his castle. He wants to live among us. The nation of Israel had done a lot of wrong things in their many years as a nation. But when God came to visit, he didn't come with a sword. He came as a baby. He demonstrated his own character. The God of the universe, the almighty God of the universe, is meek and gentle. The second thing God reveals about himself is that he loves you no matter what others may think of you. He loves you no matter what others may think of you. I think it's important to notice who God has picked to do certain crucial tasks in history. When Moses, uh, when, when God needed a spokesperson for the nation of Israel to lead his people out of Egypt, he picked Moses who had a stutter. When he needed a champion to defeat the mighty Goliath and deliver the Israelites from their overbearing neighbors, he picked David, who is described as a young boy, basically just a teenager, who was much, much smaller than a nine-foot man. When God needed someone to travel far and wide to tell about his forgiveness, he picked a murderer terrorist, who we know as the Apostle Paul. Like a thoughtful director, carefully casting people for certain roles, God carefully chooses who he play, he, who he, choose, he carefully chooses who he, play, he plays in different parts. Like, like a good director, there's also something that's being said by the people he chooses. When we look at the account of Jesus' birth, there's a message in who he picked to be a part of his grand entrance. Take a look at Mary and Joseph. They weren't even wealthy enough to pay for the normal sacrifice at Jesus' dedication. The normal sacrifice was a lamb, but the law allowed for uh, poorer persons to provide two small birds um, if they couldn't afford a lamb. 
And uh, we know that Mary and Joseph provided two small birds because they could not afford that. This is what they gave to the priest. Mary and Joseph, they weren't royalty. They weren't wealthy. They were commoners. But God chose them for a special task. Herod, on the other hand, he was the king at the time. And did he get to see Jesus? No, he never got to see Jesus. Very few people actually got to see the baby Jesus. And the ones I want to highlight today are the shepherds. Something you should know is that shepherds were um, lower-class individuals. They hung around animals all the time, and uh, because of that, they had the stench of animals on their clothes. Um, they hung out in the, in the wilderness where they could find new pastures. And as a result, they, they were just not very clean people. They, they were out um, in the wilderness. And the profession made it very difficult for them to observe the purification um, stipulations that the Pharisees had set up. And even in the literature of the time, the, the shepherds are referred to in disparaging terms. They're referred to as like people who are untrustworthy. You know, you know don't trust a shepherd. He might steal something from you. This, this is who shepherds were. They were, they, were, they were lower class. They were working class people. You know how at uh, charities, they sometimes uh, uh, bid off certain experiences um, it's like, you know, hey, we're going we're to bid off an experience to ha- the chance to have uh, lunch with Bill Gates. And uh, they, they, they say, oh, the bidding starts at $1,000. And people bid in order to have the opportunity to kind of you know, hang out with some celebrity. Well, you know, I was thinking about this, and, uh, and I, I want you to think about this for a second. What do you think it would run for if there was an auction to bid off a chance to be there at the birth of Jesus? Let's, let's, say, let's say all of history, you know, all the people who have ever lived in history, all those wealthy people in all of history, um, and they, they did an auction to uh, bid off the chance to be there, to see um, what it was like in that stable, to really see how that, that real manger, that baby was just laying in that real manger, and see Mary and Joseph just trying to make things work in the barn. How much would they give? With all the people who have ever lived and all the money that has ever been had, my guess is that the price would run up into the billions of dollars. Who actually got to be there? Some lowly shepherds. The working class shepherds. God chose some humble, God-fearing men working the night shift out in the fields. And they, they got to experience what we all wish we could have experienced. Kings and princes and many people all over history have wished that they could have been there at the time of Jesus' birth. But God chose some lowly shepherds. They got to see the baby Jesus. And they were the ones who got to announce his birth all over Bethlehem. There's a message here. Every person is important to God. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. God doesn't have his eyes on the royalty of the world like we do. He does, he's not always looking at the popular people of our culture, you know, the musicians, the actors, the senators, the celebrities. God has his eyes on the heart. And he chose a few people who fit his bill. You'll notice that the shepherds, they had hearts who were ready to hear this message. When the angels told them the news, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't say, well, that was weird. I guess, I guess, I guess we should go, uh, go into Bethlehem. No, they ran. They said, let's go. And they believed what the angels had told them. And they went and they looked through all the, all the barns to see where, where is this baby, baby in a barn. And they told everyone about it. And they went home glorifying God. They had hearts that were ready to believe. The other group of guys who get to see Jesus, who were they? 
the wise men. We don't really know where these guys came from, but what we do know um, from the Scriptures is that they had been reading about um, the Messiah in the Bible. They had, they had been expecting him. They had, they had learned all these things about Israel's Messiah, and they went and sought him out. They were searching for the truth. And while there were plenty of expectant people in Israel, the wise men were the ones who got to see the newborn king. There's a message here. If you are really searching for truth in life, you will encounter God. God does not look at titles and honors, but God has love for every person. In the birth of Jesus, he showed his love for the commoners, the working class, and a group of foreigners. It didn't matter what, God, what society thought of them. These everyday people were special in God's eyes. And the same is true for you. You are special in God's eyes. And really, God's eyes are the only ones that really matter. The third thing God revealed about himself in the birth of Jesus is that he, God, takes the initiative and invites us into a relationship. God takes the initiative and invites us into a relationship. You know, I know a fair bit of people who are uh, single. Uh, my siblings are all single still. Um, Katie has a sibling who is single. And, you know, just, just, you know, life. You hang out with a lot of single people. And uh, one of the thing that, things that I've learned from being a part of their lives, and, um, and really actually also from my own relationship with Katie, is that uh, girls like guys who take the initiative. Am I right about this? Girls, girls I think, like guys who take the initiative. And uh, I think there's an inherent part of being female that just wants to be pursued. It's like they're saying, come and, pers- come and pursue me. Show me that you, that you want me. And even after you get married, the woman wants to be pursued. And they, w- they would especially like it if you pursued them the way you did when you were first dating. <laughs> all those flowers, all those special surprises, special things. They want those back. But I'm, I'm, li- I'm like you guys. Um, you know, I'm unlike you guys. My best attempts to understand women hasn't gotten me very far. <laughs> but, but if I were to venture a guess, if I were to venture a guess, I think women like to be pursued because it shows that you are interested in them, that you really do love them. Well, to understand who God is in the birth of Jesus, we need to ask the question, what does it signify about God that he chose to come at all? He didn't have to come, but he did. He could have sent someone else to do his work, but he came himself. He birthed himself into the world. What does this signify? This signifies that God is one who takes the initiative in our relationship with him. He is proactive in the relationship. He didn't wait for us to reach out to him. He came to us. Now think about this for a moment. If you get yourself uh, stuck in a bad Uh, in a bad situation, and you can't get yourself out of it. You have to go and ask someone to help you out of it, right? Take, for example, um, let's say someone you knew, not a close friend, maybe an acquaintance, um, they they got involved in some gangs, and they wanted out, um, but for whatever reason, they just couldn't find their way out. You know, they they just couldn't make a move, They, they, they didn't have the finances, whatever. They couldn't make it out. Would you expect that if they needed help, they would come to you, um, and ask you for, for help? Of course you would. You wouldn't expect them to, you wouldn't expect your buddy to come help you out without even asking. Let's say, let's say uh, a friend of yours was in jail and they wanted to be bailed out. 
They would have, at least have to ask you, right? Especially if you didn't know them very well. It would be ridiculous to expect your, someone to calm down totally unrequested and to post bail for you. But if your young child got involved in a sticky situation and couldn't get himself out of it, you wouldn't hesitate to go run and get them out of that situation. And that is because you are watching over them. They are under your care. When God initiates with us, he communicates that he is our true father. He wants to have a relationship with us. His entry into this world is not just for the purpose of a cool story. It's an invitation. He's initiated. He said, I want to have a relationship with you. And you see, this has been his character throughout all of history. He came to rescue the Israelites out of Egypt. He rescued them from the Philistines. He rescued them from the Babylonians. And now he's come to rescue them from themselves. As Jesus says of himself, he's come to seek and to save what is lost. But God won't force himself upon us. It's an invitation that we must receive. You know, Isaac Watts, that uh, great hymn writer, he, uh, he, he said it well when he said, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. God initiates, he comes to us, but we must receive him as king. We must make room for him in our hearts. He initiates, but we must respond. Maybe you are here today because God has started uh, nudging you. He sought you out. He's tried to get your attention. And he wants you to know that he is your true father. He's not cornering you. Instead, in the person of Jesus Christ, he's inviting you with a series of incredible events that are designed to get your attention. And if you want to enjoy a, a life lived with God, you have to make a decision that you want him in your life permanently. Not, uh, God, you can be my friend when I feel like it. No, permanent, ongoing guidance in your life. This is the sort of relationship that he's invited you into. God came and was born as a man because he wanted to be able to relate to you on your level. He's initiated with you because he's interested in you. But you have to decide, yes, I want God involved in my life in an ongoing way. The fourth thing that God reveals about himself is that he loves you so much that he embraced suffering in order to reach you. His love for you is so deep that he embraces suffering in order to reach you. When we think about Jesus' suffering, we often think about the cross, right? That's that uh, crucial moment of intense suffering. And I think that's appropriate. But uh, Jesus' death on the cross, you know, was not his only point of suffering on our behalf. It certainly wasn't the first point of suffering. You see, the first point of suffering came on Christmas Day when God experienced human suffering for the first time. That first day, God would have, for the first time ever, experienced human hunger. God would have experienced real physical pain. And I wonder what it must have been like for God, who is beyond our universe, who is so pure and separate from the corruption of our world. What must it have been like for God, who cannot be damaged, to, for him to experience suffering 
human suffering for the first time. On Christmas Day, he did experience this. And Hebrews 2 explains to us that Jesus was in every respect like us when it came to being human. He was liable to get sick, just like any other baby. He felt emotional pain. He felt hunger, physical pain. He felt the pain of broken relationships. He laughed, but he also wept. On that Christmas, the God of the universe began to feel our pain. And this was no surprise. He knew it would happen. He did not avoid it. Instead, he embraced the suffering of being human because he knew that that's what it would take to reach us. Those of you Christians who are trying to reach um, your loved ones with the love of Christ, you know that the most difficult, most noble form of love is to continue to pour out your love on someone when uh, you know that they may hurt you or continue to hurt you. To willingly undergo suffering in order to love on someone, this is love at its greatest. And this is how Jesus loved. Jesus' birth was the first step in a, long, in, a, in a long road of suffering that allowed him to understand what it was like to be in our situation. You know, if you've ever tried to care for um, a hurting person for any length of time, um, you, know, you probably know that um, when, when, you're, when you're in pain, when you're hurting, most, most people who are in pain and hurting, they really just want someone to just understand what it's like to go through their situation. They just want some, someone to understand well, God, when, when, when God became man, he came down to our level and he was able to understand from firsthand experience what it was like to be human. And you can know when you are going through a difficult time, God knows what it's like. Not, not God knows what it's like because, you know, God knows everything. God knows what it's like because he's been there. He understands physical pain. Jesus knew what it was like to be made fun of. Not only was he mocked in his ministry, um, but consider this. Consider as a child what it would have been like for him. You know, believers understand that Mary was a virgin when she conceived, right? But did the people of, of, her, of her time, is that what they thought? No. Jesus was a baby whose fatherly origins were unknown. Being born out of wedlock back then was not like it is now. It was not accepted. It was, it was, a, it was a, a thing that people frowned on. Their family would have been an outcast because of these things. Kids would have called him names. People would have known around Nazareth. Jesus knows what it's like to be an outsider. He knows what it's like to be mocked and made fun of. When Jesus is beginning his ministry, the people in his hometown are surprised by his teaching. And at one point, Mark quotes them as saying this, you know, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary? Aren't his, his, isn't his brother James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't they here with us in Nazareth? And I want you to notice something here. It's significant that they refer to Jesus by his mother's name. Um, you might not have caught this, but it's significant that they refer to him by his mother's name. Because in Jewish, the Jewish culture, you would never refer to someone by um, their mother's name. You always refer to the person by their father's name. And the only time that you would refer to someone by their mother's name was if the father had been dead so long that you could not remember his name. And this is what leads Bible scholars to understand that Joseph must have had an early death, probably in Jesus' teen years. Jesus knows firsthand what it's like to have to grow up early. He would have had to become the primary wage earner for his family. 
taking care of uh, his younger brothers. And he had a lot of younger brothers and sisters. He knows the death of family members. He knows what it's like to grow up without the guiding hand of a father. He knows what that's like. He worked with his hands. He got splinters. He had to work hard for his food. If you work hard with your hands to make your living, Jesus knows exactly what that's like. He knows what it's like to have your friends turn on you. They all deserted him when the authorities came to pick him up for crucifixion. The prophecy in Isaiah 53, I think, says it best. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In the birth of Jesus, God loved you so much that he willingly gave up the ease of heaven to live on earth, experiencing deep suffering, all so that he could reach us with a life-changing message. If you can understand what God is trying to tell you in the birth of his son, then you can have real joy this Christmas. God is telling you what sort of God he is. He's gentle. He's patient. He loves you no matter what other people think of you. In the Christmas story, even this Christmas, he is reaching out to you and saying, I want to be with you. I'll do anything to be with you. And if you only knew how deep and wide his love for you really is, it wouldn't matter if you had 30 gifts under the tree or if you had two gifts under the tree. You would have the joy of God residing in your heart. Those gifts, those decorations, those expectations of how Christmas is supposed to be, they would fade into the background. And you would be able to know real, true joy. It doesn't depend on circumstances. Maybe it's going to feel like someone's missing at your Christmas celebration this year. Maybe everyone will be there, but you, you just can see it already before your mind. They're just all going to be mean to each other. However it is that your Christmas celebration might not be all that you had hoped for, if you know, if you really know, God's love for you, you can have real joy this Christmas. Why? Because the source of your joy will no longer be the celebration of Christmas, but the source of your joy will be God himself. If the Christmas season isn't bringing the joy that you expect then realize that it was never meant to. No holiday can bring the deeper joy that you long for in life. The coolest gift you could possibly receive, it does not meet this longing. It, mere, it merely distracts us for it, from it for a season. The longing for something deeper will still be there come February. And only God was designed to bring that, that lasting sense of joy and peace to our lives. Katie once went on a missions trip to uh, serve in an orphanage in uh, Bangladesh, and she's kept with, in touch with them over the years. And it's called the Home of Love. And I just love that name, the idea, you know, orphans can go to the Home of Love. And uh, we've explained to our kids that there are some kids in the world who don't have a mommy or a daddy. And uh, they go to the Home of Love, and, and that's where they get taken care of. And uh, this, this, this idea that there's this place where kids go when there's no one to take care of them, just a really powerful image in my, my, my boys' lives. From time to time, they'll bring it up in conversation. Oh, yeah, that's, where, that's where, uh, where the boys go who don't have a mommy and daddy. 
I've come to believe that many people feel like orphans in the world. You may not be an actual orphan, but when you look at your life, it feels devoid of that love that you know that you are supposed to have. Maybe you have a family, but your relationships are such that you can't trust your family to provide the love that you uh, hope for in life. Maybe you have a spouse, but you've realized that uh, that spouse cannot meet that deeper longing, that place that only God can fill in your life. Maybe you just can't trust love to come from anywhere else. You feel like an orphan. You need to embrace the fact that God calls himself a father to the fatherless. He would like to be your truest father. Bringing a love, a love that is beyond what you have ever experienced before. If you want to make this Christmas about something more than just presents, if you want to experience real joy in your life, embrace God as your loving Father and truly receive His love into your life today. Let's go ahead and stand.